Welcome to Buildings and Beyond. The podcast that explores how we can create a more sustainable built environment. By focusing on efficiency, accessibility, and health. I'm Rob Aldrich. And I'm Kelly Westby. Around here, when we think of air source heat pumps, we think of Rob Aldridge. He's a principal engineer, and he's been working at Stephen Winter Associates since 2000. Before that, he designed, installed, and commissioned solar electric and solar thermal systems. But now he's just mostly focused on researching new trends and technologies to make buildings more efficient. Um, And we'll get to hear a little bit today about his research on air source heat pumps. Welcome to Buildings and Beyond, Rob. Uh, It's very good to have you here. Thank you very much. It's been a while. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, We are obviously going to talk about air source heat pumps. And I guess my first question is, why are we talking about air source heat pumps? Uh, Boy. So 20 years ago, like when I was in grad school or just out of grad school, like the, the electric... Heating was just anathema. It was the worst possible thing in the world. Um, because generating electricity only happened at like 30, 35% efficiency. And then you, you know, much, much more resource efficient to burn fuels in buildings to get the heat from them. Right. Um, and that's, but, I think, what our clients are saying to us now when we talk about air source heat pumps. Yeah, yeah, it could, could very well be. But, but it was. 10, I guess 10, 15 years ago, I started looking at some of the specs of these kind of later, what was then a new generation of air source heat pumps, and saw some pretty staggering efficiencies at relatively cold temperatures. Because, <laughs> and it kind of blew my mind. So, I mean, a heat pump, I guess people probably know what a heat pump is, but the heat pump uses a vapor compression cycle to move heat from one place to another from outdoors to indoors in the winter, and then backwards in the summer. Like, your fridge moves heat from inside the fridge into your kitchen. This moves heat from outdoors to indoors to to heat your home. And historically, heat pumps, air source heat pumps, which is what we're talking about today, rather than ground source heat pumps or water source heat pumps, air source heat pumps have uh, historically been used further south, where it's warmer, because um, they don't, they didn't used to perform very well at cold temperatures. So in Florida, lots of air source heat pumps, you know, when the temperature got down to 30-ish degrees or whatever, they switched over to electric resistance, and that didn't happen all that often, so it wasn't really a big energy hit. Uh, but up here, it would be a big energy hit. <laughs> we uh, operate very often below below that temperature. Below 30 degrees, yeah. Yeah. So... So this is this was something that fascinated me. I was kind of incredulous of the uh, performance, you know, the the rate of performance of these systems. So I was keeping an eye on it for, well, for the past ten or fifteen years, and 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 watching how the products evolved, and really was interested to see if we could actually measure performance to see if they lived up to their their hype, their ratings. Oh, interesting. And kind of maybe maybe this is a step backwards, but. Let's lay the groundwork a little bit. Can you talk a little bit about the terminology that we use around water source or air source heat pumps and um, what what the industry is calling things, what you like to call things? Yeah, there's unfortunately there's lots of different terminology that people use, and I don't pretend to be the authority on it, but <laughs> I try to be at least consistent myself and do what I hear most other people do when they talk about it. 
Um, so mini split is a is a term that you may hear a lot. <laughs> and to me, a mini split means mini, small, small capacity, and split. So you have an outdoor unit and an indoor unit. So like a window AC is not split, it's packaged. Everything's in one package, you stick it through the wall and it cools inside. Great. So split means you mean to have an outdoor unit and an indoor unit. And the outdoor unit, a lot of people, a lot of people still call the condenser unit. Because when you have an air conditioner, that's what it is. But when you have a heat pump, the condenser is actually inside in the winter and the evaporator is outside. So a lot of manufacturers call it the outdoor unit. So I try to also call it the outdoor unit. It's mm-hmm. more correct. But it can actually be inside sometimes. The outdoor unit? <laughs> yeah, inducted. Ducted to the... No, no, no. The outdoor unit is going to be outside. Uh, in the DRF, indoor... sometimes we see them ducted to the outside in some in some. Uh, okay, okay. Gotcha. But yeah. So, so where... where Right, you, you suck air right in and out, mm-hmm. huge louvers or fans. Right. To, okay, yeah. gotcha. So it's almost outside. Almost outside, <laughs> very close. Gotcha. Uh, but on, on the mini split front, sometimes, I think quite a few people use the term mini split only to mean ductless systems. So most people are familiar with those. You'll see the cassettes usually high up on the wall. They're very common everywhere else in the world except the US, but more and more common in the US. No ducts. It just sucks room air from the top and blows out the conditioned air from the bottom. Mm-hmm. So some people call mini just call when they say mini splits they mean ductless, but you can also have ducted mini splits or what I call ducted mini splits, which have short lengths of of duct to deliver air to a couple rooms. Great. And then now that we've gotten all that under under our belts, uh, <laughs> and VRF, did you want you mentioned VRF? I did. I should we I clarify there? there? Yes, please. So, so this is even more annoying because the terminology doesn't necessarily reflect the reality. So VRF stands for variable refrigerant flow, which usually is is used to refer to uh, larger systems than the residential heat pumps that we're going to be talking about today. So you'll you'll see six, eight, ten ton systems. You'll see several, you know, gang together on the roof of a big building with, you know, dozens of fan coils spread all throughout the building. And VRF is larger systems that can handle much longer pipe lengths. Every fan coil indoors has a has a expansion valve. It's it's a lot more versatile uh, and bigger capacity and more versatile. The the small heat pumps that I've been looking at for single family, really all kinds of buildings, but small capacity, like five tons or less, often much less, often like in the one ton range. They have variable speed compressors, inverter driven compressors, and therefore they have variable refrigerant flow, wow. but they're not called variable refrigerant flow. They're called inverter driven heat pumps or a whole bunch of other terms, but variable speed heat pumps. So VRFs are usually not called heat pumps, even though they pump heat. And inverter driven heat pumps are not called VRF, even though they have variable refrigerant flow. <laughs> Great. And now that that's super clear, <laughs> you brought up uh, clear as mud. I think someone around here used to say the you brought up inverter driven technology. Can you talk a little bit about inverter versus single speed two stage, uh, kind of how that technology has evolved? Yeah, it, I guess the the history of it I can't speak too too much. I think it was in Japan. I think it might have been like thirty years ago or something. Um, 
where so the the inverter refers to part of the electronics. Here's my simplistic understanding, but power to these units gets converted to um, direct current, and then inverted back to alternating current at the frequency you want the compressor to operate. So you, if you operate the compressor at varying frequencies, you can deliver different amounts of refrigerant flow and different capacities, depending on what the control system wants, depending on the load, depending on you know, whatever the control algorithms are calling for. So that's where the term inverter comes from. And there are some efficiency uh, benefits when you compare it to single speed or even two speed because you basically have, in a lot of these systems, you have the same coil area, the same heat exchanger area, uh, but you're moving you know, half the refrigerant at part load. So you're using much, much less electricity to move that refrigerant, but with a, still a pretty large coil area, you can get a pretty good efficiency. Uh, and the other way that it helps is, is in cold, cold weather. They can kind of overclock, that's probably not the right word, but when you need a lot more heat, the compressors can run at higher speeds than they normally would under, you know, single stage, 60 hertz, whatever. So they can they can run faster, deliver more heat at really cold temperatures. You'll take an efficiency hit when they're working that hard, but it really can provide. It's it's pretty impressive how much heat they can provide at, at cold temperatures. Right, and I think part of uh, part of it too was about matching the load in the space more closely, right? The not having to kick on and kick off the compressor. Not cycling. Right. Yep. There are some comfort benefits, maybe durability benefits, maybe energy benefits associated with, yeah, less cycling. Right. And sort of speaking a little bit to that efficiency, can you talk a little bit about rating systems? People say COP, they say HSPF. What are the differences? Who's testing? And do are these the right tests to be? Uh, applied to these new-ish <laughs> to us inverter based. Um, that is a big topic, and so COP stands for coefficient of performance, which is energy out over energy in. It's basically efficiency, but you would hope that the COPs are actually greater than 100% because you're you're moving heat from one place to another. You're not converting heat, so you know you want to see COPs. You know, in the threes or fours, or you know, the higher the, higher the better, depending on the application. It it, it depends. Um, HSPF stands for heating season performance factor. Uh, it has units of BTUs per watt hour. It, um, it it was developed initially. It was kind of it was developed to kind of duplicate SEER ratings for air conditioners, I believe. And then used for heat pumps back at like 30, 40 years ago. When, again, when heat pumps were only used down south, uh, they didn't have a lot of cold weather. And it was pretty much single stage equipment. And the HSPF rating, the calculation procedure, really makes sense for that kind of equipment. For the newer equipment, it really doesn't make sense. Uh, I, I hate to throw stones because it's <laughs> a lot easier to criticize things than to actually develop a good standard, but it, it's we not... We have really good windows here, though, so it's, it's okay. Oh, yeah? Nice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, HSPF for inverter-driven heat pumps are pretty worthless. The number is pretty meaningless to me. Uh, so what I what I do, and there's, there's a lot of reasons for that, and some folks at uh, CSA uh, in Canada are trying to develop a test procedure that's more uh, 
appropriate and reflects real-world performance better for variable speed systems. I mean, it's really hard. It's really hard to rate. It's really hard to test because everything's variable speed. The compressor's variable speed. All the fans are variable variable speed. And you can only test it, you know, steady state, really, or, well, maybe not. But that's how the tests are done right. at steady state. So how do, how do you do that and to make it reflect real-world performance and... Um, they haven't figured that out, yet. but hopefully, hopefully it's coming. Great. So I look at like I look at the manufacturer literature, and I look down at like the the, the COP at the design temperature, at my heating design temperature or cold design temperatures, to see okay. what the capacity is, to see what the efficiency is from the manufacturer literature. Generally. Great, that's a good recommendation. And uh, speaking of these rated uh, COP. Um, on the unit and the rated capacity, you didn't you do a study in 2012 about how these things are actually performing? Yeah, that was yeah, that was fun. That was that was a small study. That was like ten. We monitored ten ductless mini split heat pumps in single family homes around New England. It was sponsored by the Department of Energy, uh, and we partnered with Efficiency Vermont on it. And we monitored like I. I to that point, I didn't. I hadn't seen, for my taste, rigorous enough uh, assessments of field performance. And again, they're hard to monitor because everything's variable speed, um, especially the airflow on the indoor units. So we we monitored return temps, supply temps, and airflow in real time. And that airflow varied depending on the fan speed, depending on the how soiled the filter was, depending on the little vein positions that direct the air up or down. So it really varied a lot. So monitoring airflow allowed us to calculate more accurate uh, heat delivered. And then also we monitored um, uh, electricity consumption. So from that, we could get the COPs. And you mentioned there were not so rigorous studies before. What was missing from those? Uh, I think mostly the flow rate. I mean, it's easy to monitor electricity consumption. It's pretty straightforward. So quite a few people had done that. Some people monitored return temps and supply temps and not flow rate, like they looked up the literature flow rate values for the heat pumps and assumed that that was what was being delivered. So they were assuming that the COP was wrong, but that the flow rates were right. That's kind of like, well, you know, there's also a COP. You can just look at the literature and find a COP. Um, but, but it's hard. And, and you know, right. we were, it, we, we went around and around and around on what the best way, the most practical way was to measure flow rate. Um, and we were lucky, lucky to get the funding to, to do it. It was pretty interesting. Great. And, and the findings were concerning at first. So it was a cold winter that we monitored. I think, it, I think it, I got it 2012, 2013, or 11, 12. Actually, I'd have to go and look and see. We'll have the study in the show notes. All right. Thank you. We'll put the study in the show notes. I will put the study in the show notes. So uh, the average COP of the systems we monitored was two, 2.0, mm. which was lower. I mean, people, I think I was expecting closer to three. For a heat based on the literature. Based, or based on the, yeah, largely based on the literature. And uh, so it was... Um, it was sobering. But the other thing was that it ranged all over the place. Right. We had one system that had a COP of one for the whole winter, and wow. which floored Meaning me. Meaning electric resistance heat. Pretty much, yeah, why not? Yeah, you just should have had electric resistance heat. Right. And we had some that were really good, you know, in the mid-twos. mid, in the mid twos. So, mm-hmm. so the range of performance was pretty staggering. Right. Um, 
And that was really concerning. I can't, I mean, so many people told me that our study is bogus, it's flawed, it's all, you know, so many people dismissed it. But we went back to... Were there some specific complaints? That it was wrong? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> okay. They're way too low. These, num- yeah, these okay. efficiency numbers are way too low. They Got can't it. possibly reflect real, you know, real numbers. Okay. Um, Not like the way that you measured CFM was, you know, uh, inaccurate. Yeah, they didn't get into detail. We okay. went, we, we probably tried 20 different methods to measure flow rate from these systems. And there's one friend of mine who we went back to his house like five times. Thank you, John. <laughs> Thanks again. He, he's, a, he's an energy geek also, so he's, I think he was happy to help out. But it was, um, we did our due diligence. So I was, I was pretty confident that it, was, it wasn't crazy. But the other thing we found was that the capacity, the heat output, pretty much did match Oh, manufacturer specs. It was the efficiency that was off for some of the systems. A few, you know, quite a few of the systems. Okay. And so are they uh, are they still calling you up and telling you to fix your study or No, because there have been other studies which found similar things. So <laughs> I passed the buck to the people that did the other studies. Um, uh, a few years later there was a study uh, the Massachusetts Utilities hired Cadmus to do an evaluation of much more, 100ish systems okay. in uh, Massachusetts homes and I think Rhode Island, Massachusetts and Rhode Island homes. And um, so they used a very a similar method where they didn't measure flow rate, they measured return time, supply time and, and electric energy, electric power. Um, the winter that they did this evaluation was the record-breaking snow winter, the most snow ever recorded in Boston wow. forever. Uh, it was very cold, very snowy and they in 100-ish I, I hate talking about other people's reports, so we'll put we'll this. Link it we, we'll well. link it as well. But from my reading of the report, that, that first winter, that incredibly cold winter, they found average COP of 1.7 of all the ductless heat pumps installed. Okay. Uh, which is even lower than what we found. Right. And, but again, and maybe, the range. Maybe somewhat aligned compared to outdoor similar. temperature or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but again, huge range of performance. Some mm-hmm. systems are performing great. Some systems were horrible, absolutely right. horrible. And so they continued the evaluation for another winter. Again, this is my understanding. And the next winter was like an absurdly mild non-winter. And the average COP went up to 2.5. So a big difference. But there again, staggering range in efficiencies and performance. So this got us thinking about, you know, what... Obviously, these systems can perform to their specifications, just a lot of them are not. So, yeah. What's going on? What's going on? <laughs> so did you find that there was a particular uh, manufacturer that wasn't, was problematic? Or did you, what, what did you find? No, no particular manufacturer seemed to be bad. Um, the, it, in, it, in general, and I, we haven't figured it all out, but I think we know some things and some are common sense. One is, one of the most common sense features is these things suck heat from the outdoor air. If they're buried in snow, they cannot suck heat from the outdoor. <laughs> okay. uh, and that seems obvious and stupid. Right. It's not. There were right. so many of these systems that were buried in snow, or especially when we had like five feet of snow on the ground, right. um, or or like underneath drip edges, you know, on the side of the house, underneath a drip edge without a gutter, and and it, or the gutter f- fills up and freezes, and ice drips down and encases the heat pump, the outdoor unit, in ice. We saw that in our small study, and you know they, they saw it in the bigger utility study. It was, that's, you know, 
common sense would say that you should not do this. But <laughs> so mount it above the area median snowfall, uh, sort of. Mount that it, get it up above the snow, right? Which might mean pretty high. Uh, you know, especially in northern New England, I see them mounted on the sides of buildings, four or five feet up. You know, okay. above the snow, not under a drip edge or. If, if it is, or maybe even if it isn't, protect it with like a little, you'll see a lot with little hats on them mm -hmm. to shed the snow and ice and rain so that the evaporator doesn't freeze out there. So that, that was probably the most common sense thing we found <laughs> that explained one. the poor performance. Um, sizing was another one. It's sizing the systems so that they more, they meet the load better. They, they, they're better matched to the load. Uh, it tends to lead to better efficiency, and that's for ductless systems more. What we found in some in some cases, the ductless heat pumps, if they were really oversized, the indoor fan fan coil was always in low speed. The fan was in low speed, and that kind of crippled your capacity and efficiency. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't, it, it yeah, it underperform it underperformed. Yeah, and uh, I thought that because these things vary, uh, vary in terms of the compressor can vary to meet the load, that oversizing wasn't as much of a problem. But it's interesting to hear, you know. Yeah, I, and I think it's with ductless. So if you I went in and you, you took that same ductless heat pump and took the fan and stuck it on high all the time, you might not see that problem. But that's a lot of airflow. It can be cool. It can be loud if you always have your indoor fan coil on high. Actually, I saw a study... Which I can try and link to that that did that. They did like, they did a few nights with a heat pump, the fan in uh, auto, mm -hmm. and then a few nights the same heat pump, they put the fan too high, and they saw like a forty percent increase in the COP. Oh and wow! They just put that indoor fan speed to high, so that was that was a big deal. You you mentioned the outdoor unit. Is there anything in terms of the indoor unit uh, where it's located or? Return air temperature seems to be a pretty big deal. These things were initially developed for cooling. Again, I'm talking about ductless. So putting them high on a wall uh, and, and also above head height, so you're not going to whack your head into them. That's important. But the warmest air in a room is going to be out by the ceiling. So that's the return air for most of these ductless heat pumps. So we saw return airs, temperatures of high 70s, 80s pretty regularly in some of these homes. And with that, that high return air temperature, you're going to lower your capacity and efficiency. So, yeah, a ducted system where you can suck cooler air from a more appropriate place, or uh, many manufacturers make like low wall, like floor mounted, kind of radiator sort of profile heat pumps, which may make more sense in a heating dominated space. Interesting. And one thing that we find, I know in, in VRF mostly, in, in some of the commissioning projects that we've done is we'll get a low discharge air temperature and we'll find out that there's an issue with refrigerant charge. Oh my God, yeah. That, <laughs> so that COP of one, which I was like, we, some, we must have done something wrong. We must have uh -huh. done something wrong. I talked to, to another um, a researcher who had said, yeah, I'll bet you anything that's overcharged. Um, yeah, charge is important. I okay. mean, it, it always is important, and, and I, I don't. Again, with with variable speed equipment, it's really hard. It's harder, I should say, mm -hmm. to assess the charge with variable speed equipment. You can't, you know, you know, t checking superheat or, or the the common methods you use to check charge in single stage equipment. Everything's variable speed. The indoor fans variable speed. The outdoor fans variable speed, and most importantly, compressors variable speed. So right. it's it's harder to do those to do those checks. So weighing in the refrigerant accurately when you install it 
is 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 the way to is the way to do it. So measuring the line lengths, testing yep. the pressure testing, vacuum, and then adding the right amount of refrigerant. Adding the right amount of refrigerant. And and some of them are like pre-charged for line lengths of between x and y. Okay. So but pay attention to that. Right. And if you don't need to add any, don't add any. <laughs> and if you do, do. I mean, follow the, follow the instructions. All right. So if we're back here in five years, what are we, we going to be talking about here? Um, we're going to be talking about some other studies that we didn't get to talk about. <laughs> I assume because we ran out of time. But I, I, I do want to say that a lot of these kind of best practices are outlined in some pretty good uh, NEEP documents. NEEP is the Northeast Energy Efficiency Partnerships. Mm-hmm. And they have, A, they have a, a good specification that'll let you know if you want to use a heat pump in a cold climate, what to look for, what the COP to look for, et cetera. Um, also, they have some heat pump selection guides. You know, mm-hmm. So for, for a particular application, how to, how, to, how to think about what kind of heat pump to select, or, or, or is the heat pump going to be appropriate for your application? Right. Um, and because also, it's not necessarily the appropriate in every scenario. No. No, I wouldn't say. Yeah, I wouldn't say so. Especially. Well, I mean, it depends what your goals are. I mean, it, if you have really big loads, then going back to fuel-fired systems is is still going to fuel-fired systems is still going to be the lowest cost mm-hmm. and maybe most practical way to meet it. Um, but you know, another part of the reason we see more and more heat pumps is because loads are getting smaller and smaller and smaller, especially with newer new construction efficient buildings. Yeah. NEEP also has a uh, kind of guideline for quality installation, which talks about a few of the things that I mentioned and more things. So that is definitely a good resource. So I, I would uh, refer you there. And also, you know, I talked about the big utility study, which had pretty Yeah, you mentioned another study. Let's talk about it. So uh, just recently, uh, Vermont did a study of uh, air source heat pumps, ductless air source heat pumps installed through their um, incentive programs. And they found uh, really staggeringly good performance. Average COP for several dozen, I don't think it was 100, but it was Mm -hmm. 70-something maybe, I think. Average COP for... I think it was two winters was three three point which is so much better than the Way other better. studies. And 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 I think Vermont really, you know, took a lot of these findings to heart. It's like we got to yeah. make sure our systems are installed better. Okay. And I I listened to a presentation uh, from one of the guys at Cadmus that did the evaluation, and, and he said, yeah, these are the quality of installation was just so much better than. Oh, anything, interesting. He saw anything. both studies. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He was out, he was doing both studies. Right. Yeah. So the quality of installation was was so much better, and the 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 users were so much savvier mm. about their equipment and knowing how to operate it. I mean, one of the one of the systems we monitored in Vermont. I really I looked out the window, and there was the outdoor unit of the heat pump buried in ice underneath the drip edge, and I said, I I don't think that's going to work very well. And the guy said, Well, it'll probably work again in April when everything melts. <laughs> it's yeah, you know. Who needs heat in the winter? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I'm, I'm glad you re-steered me there, Rob, because that is a much happier note to end on. <laughs> um, and I think uh, probably the manufacturers will be much happier with us to end on that note as well. Um, and so I'm going to take back the question, and I'm going to say that in five years, we'll be sitting here talking about your new study 
uh, on VRF systems, which I just want you to do. Yeah, uh, VRF. That are, in five years, they're going to be performing perfectly because you'll have figured it all out and uh, we're going to figure out how to make them perform perfectly. I have concerns about <laughs> VRF systems. V- I mean, it, VRF systems are a lot bigger, a lot more complicated, a lot right. more joints where refrigerant, refrigerant might leak, for example. So I'm, I'm, I haven't yet seen good studies that show heat delivered and electricity con- consumed. Right. I, me, I, me neither. Yeah. If anybody listening has, please send Please that send out. it to yes. us. Yeah. yeah. And actually, on that note... Did you have any? Did you see any differences between having one indoor unit and multiple indoor units uh, on the same outdoor unit? No, I didn't. We only monitored one to ones. But the two Cadmus studies that I mentioned monitored what I call multi-split, where you have one outdoor unit with two or three indoor units. And yes, efficiency was lower the more indoor heads you had for the same outdoor unit. Wow. So that's and I've I've talked to a lot of lot of contractors that say the same thing. Like, like oh yeah, everybody knows that multi splits are much more efficient. So one to one's the way to go if if you can if you afford can afford all of those outdoor units. They're not even that much more expensive. You know, a three to one is kind of two and a half to three times the price of three one to ones. Kind of oh, okay. Yeah, I, that's that's been the the pricing I've seen. Interesting. All right. All well, right. on that note. All right. <laughs> Thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Buildings and Beyond. For more information about the topics discussed today, visit www.swinter.com slash podcast and check out the episode show notes. Buildings and Beyond is brought to you by Stephen Winter Associates. We provide energy, green building, and accessibility consulting services to improve the built environment. Our professionals have led the way since 1972 in the development of best practices to achieve high-performance buildings. Our production team for today's episode includes Dylan Martello, Alex Mirable, and myself, Heather Breslin. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.